0: You're listening to Tell Me About It, a production from the 1G Design Lab, a community of storytellers and space makers changing the radical edges of higher education.
1: One fun fact is I actually was thinking about going into art my senior year of high school, and I think I was sitting at a desk and I think I flipped a coin in all honesty. (laughs) Um, I make a lot of my life decisions based off of flipping coins and a lot of people get very like nerve wracked by it. I sometimes pull it up on my phone and they're like, Stephanie, don't do that anymore. I'm sorry. It's just something that I'm probably going to do for the rest of my life. And it's gotten me, I don't know if it's gotten me far, but it's gotten me to where I'm at right now. So (laughs) I'm going to keep on doing it. (laughs)
0: <laughs> this first episode shares an interview I had with Stephanie Guzman, who you just heard talking about her coin-flipping strategies for life decisions. Along with her unique strategy for decision-making, Stephanie shares with us what it was like being a first-generation college student at Loyola University, a private institution of about 12,000 undergraduate students located on the north side of Chicago. Stephanie talks through her experiences being a woman of color in the sciences, how she built meaningful relationships with mentors, especially as an introvert, and she shares some of what we like to refer to here as the hell yeah moments as a student at Loyola. Though I realize now that Loyola is a private religious institution, so maybe we should refer to them as the heck yeah moments. But before we go into all of that, let's take a quick deep dive into the why behind 1G and this podcast. The purpose of this podcast is to talk about the design of higher education and how that design impacts us. If you think about it, colleges and universities play a huge role in shaping education, industry and research, politics, and the workforce. Honestly, these institutions shape much of how we function as a society. That's a pretty heavy social responsibility, especially given how wide and diverse the stakeholders of higher education are. I mean, the people who engage with higher education represent the wealthiest of the wealthy to those from the most modest of incomes. They are spread across race, ethnicity, age, and culture. They come from urban city centers and small rural communities, and they represent complete opposite ends of the political spectrum and everyone in between. That's a lot of people and perspectives and experiences colleges and universities are trying to serve. So the question is, how are they doing? Are all of the stakeholders In higher education being served well. That's what led us to this podcast. We wanted to hear the first-hand stories of those who are typically pushed to the margins of higher education. We wanted to know what their experience was like, and we wanted to hear it from their mouths. Which brings us back to this episode's guest,
1: So I'm a Stephanie Houston. Um I am obviously a first-generation student. Uh, I was doing my doctoral studies back at Johns Hopkins University, uh, but due to a family circumstance, I'm just taking a pause for that for right now. So I'm in the Chicagoland area. I am currently working at Northwestern University um, at the Lurie Center, um, working at a core facility, which is an immunology core facility. Even in high school, I knew I wanted to do something biology, biochemistry related. Uh, It was a lot of going back and forth with my parents as to where I was going to go because I applied throughout the entire country, but they somehow persuaded me (laughs) to stay in state. I think it was the only in state that I had applied to.
0: Maybe just tell me a little bit about when you first. What was the first couple of weeks like for you, your freshman year starting at university?
1: Uh, so actually, whenever I attended Loyola, the first couple of weeks, I was the outlier in terms of feeling very comfortable uh, navigating by myself, doing my own things while balancing schoolwork. I will say that it was a very uh, heterogeneous population back in my high school. And uh, Loyola being the predominantly white institution that it was, it was a lot more homogenous in terms of, uh, I guess, socioeconomic status and uh, demographics. So I think I was just learning how to navigate those spaces as being a, a woman of color and especially being a first-generation woman of color, uh, which is something that really stuck out within the first couple of weeks. So academically, I wasn't struggling at all. <laughs> I was having a very good time there. Uh, But I would say that in terms of identity, I felt extremely out of place. Overall, my identity of being a woman of color in the hard sciences was something that I didn't particularly know how to navigate the first couple of years. But then the last couple of years, it was more so me being proud because I was always one of two Latinas in my chemistry course. (laughs) or my biochemistry major. So I think that there's just, you know, that camaraderie factor of being first generation, right? But also being a Latina and having certain, you know, traditional and cultural values that are near and dear to me, not being able to relate to a large population of, you know, the Loyola community. So it was a lot of social transition, I would say.
0: The social transition into college can feel overwhelming for any student but it's especially the case for those who are the first in their families to attend. It can be difficult to find your footing and feel a sense of belonging when you are in a culture and a system that is not designed for you. Add to this the financial strains faced by many first-gen students, and you can see why the transition to college can be so overwhelming. As Stephanie shared a little bit about how this financial burden affected her and her family.
1: So another identity that I had not mentioned yet um, is the fact that both of my parents were undocumented up until recently, actually, up until the year of 2018 slash 2019. And Loyola actually was the most expensive option out of the 10 10 colleges that I had applied to. Um, And they had mentioned, you know, we'll help you out financially financially. I did get a scholarship through Loyola, but it wasn't sufficient. Um, so they told me that they would help me out. But the first year we started to notice that as someone of low socioeconomic status, it was actually a huge tool on my family. So there was kind of a, a caveat, so to speak, that towards the end of the first year, if I did not get another scholarship, I probably would not be able to attend my sophomore through you know however many years it took to get a bachelor's degree. So it was very nerve-wracking. I think that my identity of being of low socioeconomic status was very prominent my first year.
0: This type of financial strain is felt by many first-generation college students. While they make up nearly half of the total population of students attending higher ed, only 14% of low-income first-generation students end up graduating with their degree in six years. 14%. So that means financial support can make or break getting a college degree.
1: Uh, One day I was just sitting in my general chemistry course. I think it was just a very long day. I was checking my email, even though I wasn't supposed to, (laughs) and I noticed that I had been granted a scholarship through the chemistry department. To me, it meant so much because that meant that I was going to be able to continue my education.
0: If you're enjoying listening to a Stephanie story so far, stay with us. Coming up, Stephanie talks about the value of building your own network of mentors, the importance of practicing self-care as a student, and some ways to step outside your comfort zone, especially if you are an introvert. And you'll definitely want to stay tuned for her hell yeah moment. It's awesome. Building a sense of belonging as a student can be difficult, but it's so important. Finding a community for support and solidarity and feedback can completely change your experience as a student, but that doesn't mean that it's easy, especially if you are a introvert, which I'll let you know right now that I am, and I discovered this is something that Stephanie and I both have in common.
1: I was a very big introvert uh, my freshman year, so it was very hard for me to kind of meet new people and talk.
0: But being an introvert doesn't mean you can't seek out this support, this community, and these mentors. It just means finding ways to do that that work for you.
1: Full disclosure, like I had mentioned, huge introvert. (laughs) I get so much social anxiety because I feel as though people really don't like me. So in the beginning, you know, it's very hard because if you don't feel comfortable talking to new folks, then it's going to be hard for you to stumble upon those people. So something that I did for myself to keep myself accountable would be to try to do as many things as possible, even if it meant that I had to do them alone. I think as soon as you're able to go to a place where no one kind of knows you, and you're open to have a conversation with someone or even you know sit down and have lunch with someone, I think that that willingness to be vulnerable is very important for you to stumble upon your mentors. And something that I still struggle with, I was gonna say it as an answer, but now I'm saying, oh, I don't know, because being a part of different communities, like being engaged in different extracurriculars is super important immensely important you still have to balance how much you can do, right? I'm I'm not going to say, oh yeah, do like 20 extracurriculars and then be suffering afterwards because you know, you, you bit off too much. Uh, but like I said, that's part of the balance, right? Try one extracurricular, try two extracurriculars, okay, I didn't do too well in my history class or I didn't do too well with sleeping last semester, so maybe I'll cut back to one again, you know, things like that. It's all, life is always a trial and error. So I guess if I had to pick an answer, I would say vulnerability Um, and, you know, that corny answer
0: of trying new things. So why go through this effort to build this community and to seek mentors? Well, it can get lonely. It can get lonely when you feel like your identity is in conflict with all those around you and in conflict with the structures of the institution where you're at. This was something Stephanie talked about as a graduate student at Johns Hopkins University. I would say as a graduate student, uh, I think that the communities were a lot smaller,
1: but that is just because, you know, either the institution, and you know the, how the thing goes, like the higher up, you go, the less you see of yourself. (laughs) So uh, being more explicit, you know, for example, me being, you know, a low-income woman of color in the sciences, which is a mouthful, you know, the higher up that I go, the less of me that that, you know, I see. And it was just like a very drastic change going to graduate school. I do know a lot of wonderful women of color at the Hopkins community right now that are doing great work. Um, And I feel as though that they felt very connected, but I did not. And I think that that's just kind of like a modge podge of different reasons.
0: I want to take a second to talk to any administrators or faculty who might be listening. This experience that Stephanie's talking about, this is your place to be able to help make those changes. You are responsible for the policies and the cultures that are created on your campuses and in your classrooms and labs. So you have the opportunity to change these environments and by doing so, change your campus, your research, and the entire culture for the better. Until we start changing the structures, policies, and culture of higher education, these embedded barriers due to biased design will continue to take its toll on students like Stephanie. She talks about it a little bit here. Um, I would say, you know,
1: my identities just kind of, uh, for lack of a better term, I would say they kind of racked up towards senior year, especially whenever there were professors who would say very microaggressive comments and no one would bat an eye. (laughs) I think that those were moments where I would say, you know, hey, that's not fair. Why isn't anyone turning around and saying anything? And why should I be the one to advocate for myself? Like, why can't there be other people? who also, you know, say, hey, that's not okay. And to me, I felt, and it's very similar. I I hope that someone out there is listening to this to say as a first generation student, you feel like you have to put the world on your shoulders and you feel like you can't let anyone down. (laughs) So as a result of that, I think that, you know, having to one, still be a part of, you know, different, let's say like TA positions or different jobs so I can still sustain myself because towards the latter half of my undergraduate experience, I was taking out a lot of loans and I was financially independent because my parents couldn't help me out. Um, And then another aspect of that would be, you know, classes get harder. I really wanted to graduate with honors. I wanted to be, you know, that Latina who is like really coming on top of everything. And because of that, I would say my second semester senior year, I was so burnt out. Um, I just wanted to, I wanted to please everyone. And it wasn't necessarily for the wrong reasons. I wanted the programs to advance. I wanted there to be kind of like a legacy that was left behind. And I think at the end of it, I just burnt myself out. (laughs) And that was the matchpotch.
0: This is where our conversation then turned to the importance of self-care. How, as a student, when you are facing these oppressive barriers, can you build the wherewithal and the strength and the support to continue? As Stephanie shared with me, some of the things that helped her personally.
1: I think that practicing what gives you peace is very important, Um, and that looks different for a lot of people i don't know i that sounds really cheesy like when people say oh yeah when you get your hobby make sure to you know keep on doing your hobby or if you like painting then paint if you like dancing then go dance but i really didn't take that into account like i was like oh yeah sure like i love i love dancing and i actually love painting and no one knew that about me because those were the two things that i put on the side once things started to get tough but now You know, if I were to look back on my past self, I would say, what are you doing? (laughs) Those are the things that give you peace. um, And those are the things that are going to, you know, get you through some tough times. And now that I'm saying this, also another obvious one is you really do need to seek out your mentor. Um, Sometimes you stumble upon accidental mentors, And they don't have to have the title mentor, of course. um, And they will be your biggest asset. Uh, whether that's just in your undergraduate experience, if that's in your graduate slash, you know, postgraduate experience, whatever it may be, you need to hold those people near and dear to you. So, uh, like I said, like they they may be mentors or they might also just be very close people in your life who are looking out for your best interest. <laughs> and that's a really, it's a really blunt thing for me to be saying, but sometimes, and myself included, I will say I statements, I really get annoyed sometimes when people tell me the truth and it's hard to hear and it's hard to swallow, but guess what? True friends and true mentors will tell you what you need to hear even if it is hard to
0: swallow. When you can find people who will support you like that, even if their experiences are not the same as your own, you understand and get this feeling of belonging that you're not alone, there are other people there with you. And many times, finding your community and your sense of belonging at your university involves stepping outside your university. For Stephanie, finding her purpose and belonging at Loyola actually involved leaving the campus for a time. I think that being able to get placed outside of the Loyola community was kind of
1: exposing me more so to understand my place at Loyola. Like I had to leave Loyola a little bit to experience people's stories for me to be able to have the strength and the foundation to say, hey, you know, this is my story. And I used to be, you know, I might have been afraid because I wasn't able to, you know, share my favorite kind of songs
0: or share the culture that I have. Things along the lines of that. Can you give an example of how those stories or those experiences helped with that?
1: Oh, of course, of course. Um, We went to El Paso, Texas and Juarez, Mexico. So it was kind of like a dual domestic international program. And there we got to hear stories of people who were at the border and even discussing, you know, education and You know, immigration policies. And I keenly remember this uh, one doctor in Juarez, Mexico, who was in a very small, little, rundown clinic. Um, And I forget her first name. Her name is Dr. Mendez. So shout out to Dr. Mendez. Um, I I remember her asking me, you know, what are you doing in the US? (laughs) Like, what? What experiences are you you learning, and was it worth it for your parents to go over to the United States? And I was like, oh, well, I love biochemistry, and I want to be a doctor, and I want to have my PhD. And, you know, I just rambled on and on and on, and she stopped uh, and very frankly told me, you know, what is the point of everything you're doing if you're not helping out those around you? And I think there I kind of had to take a pause <laughs> and say, you know, okay, well, what does biochemistry have to do with, you know, being a woman of color? And it, it has everything to do with being a woman of color, and it has everything to do with serving communities that are underserved. So I think that was one of, I, I would say, the most predominant examples of me leaving Loyola and then coming back with that treasure and that story of her.
0: Stories are powerful especially the ones that are shared when there's a strong relationship of trust. When I asked Stephanie how stories and self-care and mentorship all supported her as a woman of color on a predominantly white campus, this is what she shared.
1: Of course. So I think it was a mixture of having to deal with it by myself, like an internalization and a reflection Uh, as well as, you know, people such as Joe (laughs) Sassado, who really, you know, I would be able to kind of like walk into the door and say, you know, hey, how are you doing? And having conversations about what it meant to be a Latina. Um, I think that there are certain factors that I didn't really take into consideration, you know, and I really needed guidance from mentors who, you know, may have experienced the same things in their past and have shared their wisdom onto current first-generation students, which is why I really enjoy being a part of this podcast because I think that, you know, the art of storytelling and to be able to say, you know, this happened to me, you may be experiencing something different, but here are my two cents. I think that those are very valuable experiences.
0: I want to leave you now with one final very powerful story that Estefany shared with me. It's one of her hell yeah or heck yeah moments. These hell yeah moments were inspired by my daughter's friend. Um, I won't share his name because I haven't asked permission, but my daughter is four years old and she has a friend who loves basketball with all of his heart. And one day, when his parents asked if he wanted to go out and shoot some hoops, just out of nowhere, he leapt up on the table and shouted, Hell yeah! (laughs) Which was just awesome. I just think, what would the world be like if we could celebrate the things we love and the awesome things in our lives with the kind of enthusiasm as my daughter's little four-year-old friend? So here we go. A Stephanie's hell yeah moment. Oh, of course,
1: of course. Um, I would say one moment that really sticks out is I went to, I forget what it's called. It's called Abercamps. It's obviously, you know, short for something. Uh, But it was a conference for minority students. Um, And I chose to go. A lot, uh, there was a particular faculty that you know was very apprehensive of letting me not take an exam because of it. Um, and I almost failed the class because I went to a science conference, which to me still baffles me because you know people who go to sports all the time like are given so much leeway. But I wanted to go to an academic conference and I was given so much, <laughs> so much attitude, <laughs> but. With that specific conference, I was really stressed out. It was my junior year. I had to do all of these classes. I didn't know many people who went there. I went by myself. And I was terrified because I was giving a a poster talk. And the poster talks, upon me arriving, I realized that they were kind of graded for a competition. So I didn't know this until, you know, I kind of landed in, I think it was in Tampa, Florida. So I started freaking out. And I was like, you know, who am I? You know, I'm just this one college student who knows nothing. And I, I was feeling very, um, very raw at the time, because I think that was when the the results of the election had come in. <laughs> and there was, like, a lot of, like, sentiment against Mexicans, which I am, and against immigrants, which my parents are. And everything just kind of came out at once. I was just very nervous. I was like, I'm this first-gen Latina you know who am I? Who am I? Um, and I got there, and I gave a, I gave you know a little poster talk to one of the judges, and he looked at me and he said, you know, are you considering graduate school? And I was like, well, not really. <laughs> I was like, I'm, I'm gonna graduate, and then I'm gonna figure out what I'm gonna do. And he said, no. He was like, I want you to go straight for your PhD. So I don't, you know, some people like to do their master's. Some people think that they need experience. You. Are ready. He's like, "You would be ready right now. And I think I like sobbed in my hotel room for a solid 20 minutes, because there was this man who, I think he was a head of a department somewhere um, in some big institution. And for someone to believe in me so much after feeling all of that raw sentiment from the election and from people saying very hateful things. It meant a lot to me for someone who didn't know me that well to say that based off of my per- my academic performance. Um, and then after that, we all got together, it was a huge conference, and they gave awards to the winners. And when they called my name because it's an international conference, or no, it's a national conference, sorry. Um, I just kind of sat there and I was like, there's no way, like they, they got that wrong. <laughs> and I don't know I you know I received it and the first people that I called were my parents and they were like we have no idea what you just won but we're proud of you (laughs) um and you know as a first generation student like your parents aren't going to understand sometimes what the heck you're doing but you know if the support is there the support is there so those that was a hell yeah moment that was like a you know, I thought I didn't know what I was doing, you know, with my major. But obviously, people think, and people still do think, that I'm very qualified. I know. I feel. I definitely feel like that five-year-old friend of your daughter. <laughs> I know, and they pronounced my name right, which I was also like, hell yeah, because you know, I my name is, 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 is Stephanie, um, and the correct pronunciation is Stephanie. And people call me Steph all the time, which drives me bonkers um, because that's not my name. You know, and when I was little, I would always say, you know, the E is silent. It's so much, you know, repressed memories that are now coming to me that I used to be really ashamed of my name. (laughs) And now, you know, they said, you know, they said it right. They said Stephanie. And I was like, yes, I'm here. So (laughs) felt very seen there. Mm hmm.
0: You've been listening to my guest, Stephanie Guzman, share about some of her experiences as a first-generation college student. And before we sign off, in case you were still wondering a little bit about that coin-flipping strategy, Stephanie shared with us at the beginning of the podcast, here's the why behind the coin flip. If you ask me, it's pretty genius.
1: Um, I make a lot of my life decisions based off of flipping coins and a lot of people get very like nerve wracked by it. But hear me out. The reasoning is because when you flip a coin, you already know the answer in your head. So when you flip the coin, the moment that the coin lands, you have like a gut instinct to choose something and you're either happy
0: that you got, you
1: know, heads or tails, or you're sad that you got heads or tails.
0: You see what I'm saying? I'm going to start keeping a coin on me. That is it. I will be doing that now. I love that. (laughs) Thank you. Please, please pass it on. (laughs) If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, head to our website and sign up at 1gdesignlab.org. We'll send you the latest episodes each time they're launched. To get connected with our community and to hear other stories from the radical edges of higher ed, follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Our handle is at 1G Design Lab. Finally, if you want to be involved or have a story that you want to share, reach out to us at hello at 1G Design You've been listening to Tell Me About It from the 1G Design Lab.